And welcome to Lily High on Life. Our special guest today, Evan Thornley. Evan, welcome. Thank you, Lily. It's great to be here. I'm very excited about talking to you. You have oh, well, good. So I'm I'm excited to be here. So we're we're in good shape. It's a good place to start. Yeah. If the energy's good, it stays good. <laughs> um, you know, if I saw you walking down the street, I would think, oh, what a lovely Jewish man, because <laughs> you're obviously Jewish. You're wearing a kippah. You've got yet sits it all of that but you are not what you appear to be <laughs> or actually you are plus a whole lot more sure. so let's start with what you're doing right now and um you've recently converted to judaism but it's your second conversion so tell us about yeah, that yeah, well, story two, two laps of the track right so i uh I started my conservative conversion 10 years ago at Kalat Nitsan. Um, and uh, as I was completing that, actually, I, I realized that I probably wanted to do an orthodox conversion as well. And, While you were doing it. Yeah. And, and, and I went and saw someone at the orthodox based in and they said, well, that, that's lovely, Evan. Why don't you finish the one you've started and then come back if you still want to do the orthodox? So I did. Um, and, what was uh, it about that first conversion that meant, tipped you off that you might like a different one? Well, I think, and firstly, I had a wonderful experience with my, my first conversion and the folks at Kalit Nitsan were, were wonderful and welcoming to me. So I have nothing but great things to say uh, about that experience. Um, but... Uh, uh, during that time, I uh, I started reading a lot of Rabbi Sachs's work, and I think I've read all twenty five of his and books. And Rabbi now. Sachs, who is now Oliver Shalom, yes, yes, um, was a chief rabbi yeah. of the United Kingdom for many, many years. Yes, and uh, you know, I, just a towering figure, I think, in modern Jewish history and thought. And um, anyway, one of his early books uh, called "Arguments for the Sake of Heaven" was actually about the history of the fragmentation of Judaism. Uh, Judaism, like all religions, had to deal with the clash between tradition and modernity. And as with all religions, that led to sort of three answers to that question, either reject modernity in favor of tradition, reject, reject tradition in favor of modernity, or, or try and get a middle path, right, that, that marries tradition and modernity. And, and, and so he sort of described the way Judaism had fragmented as having elements that, that represented all of those. And, um, and he had a sort of critique of all the different uh, all the different parts of Judaism, including his own, uh, which I guess we call modern orthodoxy. Um, uh, but uh, his, one of his concerns was well, whatever differences, there's always been a great diversity of opinion within Judaism, but one of the real tragedies now is that we cannot agree even about who is a Jew. And, uh, and that that's, that's a recipe for problems, right? Uh, and I really agreed with that. I thought, well, that's right. And so uh, I, I realized I wanted to be united with all the Jewish people, not, half, not just half the Jewish people. And in order to do that, I needed to do an Orthodox conversion. And so, so that was my original sort of motivating factor. So we'll go into some more details yeah. of your life. Um, but what was it that made it a priority that you actually went and did it? Because, you know, you've got a feeling, you want to, you think, but life is busy and especially yours. What, yeah. <laughs> what was it that made it a priority at that time to actually do it? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I've never heard it phrased in that way. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think when you feel so drawn to something uh, that you really want to do, in a weird way, that's one of the few things I've done just for me, right? Like, uh, um, you know, I, I, I've been a, a, a single dad for a long time and I, I'm, I'm very close with my girls and uh, uh, you obviously do a lot as any parent does for your children. I, I start businesses and organizations and as the founder, you tend to give a lot to others and I, I guess, my conversion was really purely something that I wanted to do that I thought would would be would make my life better and make me a better person. So that was very motivating. Um, mm. and, and you make it, you know, you try and make things a priority. That, that did it, you sit down and discuss it with your girls? Three of them. You've got twins and an, and a third I one. I do. Yeah. Uh, look, I didn't discuss it with them in terms of 
you know, what do you think or will you be okay with it? Because I felt it was my decision. But, I, I mean, we absolutely talk about stuff a lot. And, I mean, they've been with me to Israel five times now. You know, they join me for Shabbat dinner a lot. Um, they... Um, was it a shock to anybody that was close to you? Uh, not a shock at all. I mean, given how, like, I mean, you know, this is the end of a, four, you know, I always like to say I had 40 years in the wilderness, right? It was a 40-year <laughs> journey from beginning to end for me in Judaism, which has some symbolic uh, uh, benefit. But um, so uh, it was the least surprising thing, I think, to anyone, especially my girls. Um, yeah. Uh, you, you know, I'd been to Israel 36 times before my uh, Orthodox conversion. So, <laughs> um, and you were CEO, worldwide CEO of Israel. At Better Place, yes. At Better Place, an yes. Israeli startup for electric cars or Yeah, stations? so I, uh, yeah, well, for charge networks for electric cars, yes. And uh, I mean, I took over from Shia Gassi, the founder, um, late, late in the piece, unfortunately, when things were probably too far gone. But, um, uh, but, but I'd, I'd been on, uh, uh, you know, Albert Dadon's uh, Australia Israel Leadership Forum. I'd led uh, 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 an Australia Israel Chamber of Commerce delegation to Israel. I actually first went to Israel uh, as a young student politician uh, just after I was president of the Student Union at Melbourne Uni uh, on a young political leaders tour in, in 1990. Uh, and so, you know, I've had a I've had a long relationship with Israel and um, and the Jews, yeah, and the Jewish community, and um, uh, you know, I might say those programs were very effective. So uh, I was on that particular year. Uh, my successor as president of the student union uh, was also on that trip, uh, uh, an old friend, obviously, and uh, who's Richard Miles, who's now. Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister and, and a great friend of Israel. So uh, I just say that the, those were good investments that our community made many years ago. Um, uh, really, really and, paid off. You know, Do you so. remember, because Israel's an amazing place. Everybody yeah. has to visit at some stage, no matter what your politics yeah, absolutely. or what your beliefs yeah. are. But Israel, for me also, because I've been many times, yeah. is all the amazing fun stuff that you don't get anywhere in the world, like getting drunk on watermelon instead of alcohol <laughs> yeah, and right. dancing on tables and little dive bars. Do you have any memories like that from either your early days or even your last trip. Oh, well, well uh, look, I have some crazy memories. Uh, the last time I was there with my girls, we were there uh, over New Year's Eve, actually. Uh, and uh, we end up at uh, Machani Yehuda uh, over New Year's Eve, right? And the, and the market closes down and then the place just filled with, I think mainly birthrighters actually, but just, it was just the wildest party I have ever seen. So uh, that was, that was pretty cool. Um, That's but, so great. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's interesting for me, for my own personal evolution, we'll go back to some of my story, but, you know, as a young uh, left-wing political activist, as I was in my days in student politics and president of the student union, um, you know, when I first went to Israel, what excited me was... Um, you know, the kibbutzim and the histadrut, right? And the idea that you had labor people running the military, you know, I thought this is really different. Funnily enough, as I went back to Israel years later as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, what excited me was, you know, was the tech economy and everything that had happened since. So I guess my own life had evolved over that time. And funnily enough, as had Israel. Uh, so, so you actually lived in Israel while you were CEO, because you were global I, CEO? I look, yeah, briefly, yes. I mean, I took over from Shai, uh, you know, when, when Better Place was already in very serious trouble. So I, I was only there for about four months. But is, it, um, is there a difference running a business in Israel to anywhere else in the world or not really? Uh, look, I, I would have to say I found Israel a tough place to do business. It's a tough business environment. Um, Can uh, you pinpoint what it was about the environment that made it tougher? Yeah, look. The people, all, the environment? I don't know. The culture had a lot of, uh, if I can use a Spanish word, a lot of machismo. You know, it was a very uh, kind of, you know, having spent a long time in Silicon Valley, um, you know, we used to talk a lot about what, what we used to call co-ompetition. It's like, yes, I'm competing with these people doing similar things to me, but we're also cooperating. Like our job mm. is to build this industry or build this space, right. as it's often called. Um, and so you did as much cooperating as you did competing. 
Right. And I, I think my, my personal experience in Israel was that it was more more competitive and less cooperative a business enough. environment. But look, my, my time there was fairly limited and, and was in a particular do you, you have know, friends? Do you still situation. have friends that you made at that time that are still friends today? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Now I don't want to go into politics or environmentalism or anything like that, but just very quickly, yes. since you were leading in the industry, yes. do you see electric cars as being viable for the future? Oh, they're completely inevitable. They're, really? They're, they're completely inevitable. Um, uh, I believe that then, I believe that now. Uh, I mean, we used to say, you know, this is not complicated. The cost of gasoline is going up. The cost of batteries is going down. We know how the movie ends, right? And that will be true, but th it's completely inevitable for other reasons. Um, I'll take that debate with you off the, when we finish well, well, that thing, well, no, well, just, just curious. Uh, I mean, here's the interesting thing, if I can take a minute to explain sure. uh, the dynamics of the automotive industry. Um, uh, when the European Union says we're banning all gasoline cars from, I don't know when it is, 2035 or 2040, sometime a long way in the future, everyone goes, yeah, whatever. But here's how it works. Um, if you're an automotive company and you invest billions of dollars in a new platform, then you want the models off that platform to, to sell for at least 10 years. And in order to sell a car, the people who are buying that car need to know that there's a secondhand market for that car some years after they buy it. So if there ain't a market for a second-hand car in 2040, then you're not going to buy it in 2035. And if you're an automotive company that's going to deliver a car in 2035 on a platform that's run for 10 years, then that's a platform that goes into market in 2025. And you took six or seven years to engineer that platform. So you started engineering that platform in 2018. So when the European Union says, we're going to ban gasoline cars. I, I may have the date wrong, but at some time, it seems a long way in the distant future. Actually, what's happening is every car company it's in the world for. has already basically stopped engineering new gasoline cars. Uh, so the transition is completely inevitable. My, yeah. Whether you think that's good or bad, you but, can debate, but yeah, yeah, I'm just absolutely. saying that that's what's going to happen. My year but about it is that... Um, even now, there's a shortage of electricity in Europe more yeah. so than in America and Australia. Yeah. So if you've got a shortage of electricity anyway, how on earth are you going to service even the most gorgeous, um, newest uh, pumping stations when you when there's no electricity to put? Uh, yeah, well, cl clearly the world is going to have to create a lot more generation capacity, and clearly there's a lot of debate about yeah. what the right so generation sources are. But um, yeah, so so, uh, but but I, I do think. In terms of where the automotive industry itself is going, going. that that path is now basically set. Listen, so. I'm a um, uh, most of the businesses I've been involved in have been uh, bootstrap started mm. and grown, and so I'm very pragmatic. Although I realise how beautiful some of the business plans and forecasts are of these great corporations, and having been in many discussions with top lawyers and everything about all of this stuff. I don't believe it and I don't think something has to look pretty. I believe it has to make common sense. Sure. Which is why which is why I'm so fascinated in some of the other things you've done because as you mentioned you tipped your toe into politics yeah. for goodness sakes. Tell me about how that happened and what. Yeah. Look, um uh, we'll come back to business. I, I would say things have to be common sense, but they have to be grounded in the underlying economics. And that was something I learned at McKinsey uh, over many years. But politics, look. Uh, you All know. right, let's just stay with McKinsey then. Yeah. We'll go back to politics. Yeah. McKinsey gives you an amazing educa global yeah. education yeah. in business. Talk to me about that and how you, how and why you got a job with them. Yeah. Um, well, that was interesting in itself, actually. Uh, I, I did a law degree at Melbourne Uni, a law and commerce degrees. I got my articles lined up, ready to go to Mallison's and go and do law. But I was thinking maybe I'd do an MBA and go into business because what I really wanted to do was own newspapers. Um, and so I thought to do that, I need to go into business. And so I thought I needed to do an MBA. And so I started talking, when I was talking to the law firms about being a lawyer, I said, look, I actually want to do an MBA. Would you guys be you know, supportive of that? And 
uh, Mallison Square, actually, which is why I went there. But as I was talking to a friend of mine uh, about an MBA because he'd finished one, he actually, turns out, was working at McKinsey. And uh, and he said, well, you should come to McKinsey, man. You're like, this is made for you. And so I got talking to him. I thought, oh, wow, this sounds, uh, actually, this sounds great. So uh, little did I know that, you know, they interview a 1,000 people and gave out nine jobs, right? So I guess, <laughs> uh, like all things in life, it's always good to not know how hard things are when you start them. You know, I'm a, I'm a mad entrepreneur. I've done 14 startups. If, if you knew when you started them how hard they were going to be, you wouldn't do any of them. So I didn't know uh, how difficult it was to get a job at McKinsey, thank goodness. So I, I did nine interviews and they actually gave me a job. And uh, so that was great. Ironically, the funny thing was I ended up not doing the MBA because I, I did my two years and then they send everyone off to Harvard and Stanford and stuff to do their MBAs. And I'm like, but hang on a minute. Then we come back and keep doing what we're doing now. What do I need to spend two years and a gazillion dollars doing an MBA for to do what I'm doing now? Uh, I just, you should just let me keep going. You always had a Yiddish cop. <laughs> right. And, and funnily enough, they did. So, uh, so I just stayed at McKinsey and a bunch of my colleagues went off and did MBAs and then came back two years later. And of course, I was further advanced in my career. Um, but, you know, it, it is, as you suggest, it's, it's really one of the great business finishing schools. And I learned a huge amount uh, um, you, you know, some of the simplest things, though, are the most important. So, you know, I always like to say to people, you know, the first thing I learned at McKinsey was to separate the big numbers from the small numbers. You, you, you know, you can get all caught up in a whole bunch of stuff, but it's like, okay, what's the big number on the page? Yeah. And what what isn't? And let's focus on what moves the big numbers, you know. And, and one of the related things that I think I learned and has always stayed with me is, what is driving the economics of an industry? How is value created? Where, where is the real money made and why and how? Because uh, there's so much going on and you can learn, you can know all about the operations of a business, but not really understand how it makes its money and and what the underlying drivers of that are. And if you don't understand that, you can you can get you can be very busy for a long time and not not create value and you get started in a project and you stay with it till it's finished so it could be anywhere from six months to six years is that the way it works uh yeah look at the time i was at mckinsey it was mainly relatively short-term studies but then you'd often do a follow-on study with the same client so you do three or four months but then i mean i i, I stayed on uh my second client for two and a half years over four or five studies so yeah do, do you recall or do, do any um light bulb moments pop out at you where you were involved in any kind of project whatever it was and you thought okay that's that really surprises me or that's how things really work well i'll give you a good example i, I mckinsey's fanatical about client confidentiality and and I always respected that but this is 25 years ago so I don't think I'm breaching any secrets at this point we were doing some work with BHP Petroleum and uh, they were considering their global portfolio petroleum assets of upstream assets so oil and gas exploration and um, and this is in the spirit of understanding how and where you make money right so if you asked, and you know, it was a very well-run company, it was BHP, right? And it was, it was, uh, they had some of the best platform engineers and best geophysicists, and they really knew so their stuff. So did Exxon. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that was all fine. And so you'd say, well, you know, you'd talk to the senior leadership about, you know, what do you think is special about about your company and why do you do well? And they'd tell you, no, well, our platform engineers do this or we do that. Anyway, I, as the junior woodchuck on the team, I analysed the financial performance over the previous decade and I came back with a completely different answer. I said, uh, actually, it seems to me that you make money in the jurisdictions where you get favourable treatment under the fiscal regime from the governments. So actually, the places you've ended up making money, particularly, turns out, Australia, um, and to a lesser extent, the North Sea, were places where you had great relationships with government and then negotiated good fiscal terms on your acreage. And then, yes, the quality of your platform engineering and your geophysics was roughly the same everywhere, as it was with your competitors, the Exxons and others. The difference of where you made money and not was actually in government relations, which nobody wanted to hear and nobody felt. But, you know, that was just that. So th this is, I think, a good example to me. And, and it was quite a, you know, this was quite a, a, a big 
shock to a lot of people. Yeah, the fact that you would even pursue something that was already established as being a fact is also a great credit to you and to McKinsey for yeah, allowing Yeah, you, you know, it. you try and follow the facts where they lead, you know, and not the biases. And I, I just looked at the numbers, you know, in detail and then tried to figure out what had happened and it, it became very clear. So so I think that's a good example to me. That was an early example in my, in my business career of learning to understand what really drives value and even people with decades of experience and, and, and operational expertise don't necessarily see behind the business as to what's driving value. When you went in on any of your projects, mm. did you ever look at what streamlining the um, the business would be like, cutting back on staff, making sure everybody was in fact giving, uh, there was value in the salaries that were paid? Oh, look, McKinsey certainly did a lot of that work. Um, we used to do what were called AVA analysis, activity value-added analyses and studies of that type within the firm. I didn't turn out to work on those types of studies. I tended to work more on growth strategy projects. So, so um, the reason so, I asked so I, I didn't so much. I'm sort of moderately familiar with the methodology and I had friends that worked on some big, big assignments that, you know, their sort of their golden rule was, you know, 40% reduction in compressible costs. And and how do you get to that? And uh, I mean, running my own businesses, I've had to do that. You know, I, I took, you know, my, my first company, LookSmart, which was, you know, significant publicly listed tech company. We went through the tech crash. Which was amazing. How did you start um, LookSmart? You know, we had to we had to let 162 people go on one day, you know, January the 8th, 2000. I still remember it was a tough day, but it was the right decision for the business. Um, so, yeah, so I, I've had to live through that a, a, a few times. Well, I asked the question from a personal perspective. Yeah, right. I've always wanted to ask somebody because mm. it seemed to me um, I did a few entrepreneurial mm. things when I was living mm. in America and all of that. And it seemed to me that um, large companies, corporations, mm. seemed to have people that were just wanted to keep their jobs. They wanted to do exactly. enough work and they didn't want to rock the boat so they wouldn't look at anything different because they could lose their job if they did. And so that to me at the time, now I'm, it is what it is, but at the time it used to infuriate me because it- Oh, well, um, you and me both, not just that, I, I would go, I, I'd, I'd take a more radical stance even than that. Um, and interestingly, it's a stance that would be endorsed very much by Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, right? So this is not an anti-capitalist view. Um, but I think that the managerial class has taken over modern capitalism at the expense of uh, everybody else, including shareholders. Mm. You know, I think most Absolutely. large public companies are run for the convenience of the people that manage them, yes. not for the benefit of their shareholders, let alone their customers or their employees or their uh, or their suppliers or anyone else. Um, you, you know, how can you have a 25% increase per annum in management compensation, shareholder returns of maybe half that, yeah. employees getting maybe 3% increases, and in most cases, suppliers and 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 others getting squeezed. So, you know, this is a silent redistribution of wealth from everyone, including shareholders, to the managerial class. Mm. And success in the managerial class is not dictated by delivering value to shareholders. It's dictated by the internal corporate politics. Internal individuals. So, I mean, I've never worked for a large public yeah. listed company. And to be honest, I couldn't do it, right? I, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm one of my 14 startups. So <laughs> exactly. I, I was never going to be able to So just to back that. to that, yeah. that, how did look smart was amazingly innovative mm. at the time mm. and it listed you know for a couple of billion and went up to 14 billion yeah. or something like yeah. that but it's not it was like real money in those days yeah. <laughs> yeah not only real money but my question is more what tell me a little bit about what how and why you found that niche and how you developed it because the billions sound wonderful but it also sounds like it was tough going oh, and you man. could have thrown it away a few times oh well as thrown well. It away. i mean we we went within days of going broke multiple times i mean you know you, you talk to anyone who's had a successful business everyone's gone through tough times there's a, there's a lot of so what gets you through those tough times what kept you going rather? Uh, well unreasonable persistence is my favorite phrase <laughs> um it was actually simpler than that at the time um we literally uh 
we're in Silicon Valley. I literally did not have money for a ticket home if the business had folded and it very nearly How did, did. you get to Silicon Valley? How did you get involved in the project? And just describe yeah, it a little sure. bit. Yeah, so, sure. So I was at McKinsey. Um, I uh, wanted to learn about business so I could own newspapers. Um, and <laughs> I love newspapers. Um, and uh, so it took me a few years and I eventually got to the media practice in New York uh, via oil and gas and a bunch of other parts of McKinsey. Um, and then uh, I, uh, and that was just at the time when the internet was just becoming a thing. So, but pre the web, right? So it was all the, the original proprietary online services, Delphi and CompuServe and stuff. And, you know, you're typing, you know, Unix commands into a command line. I mean, just not user-friendly at all. Um, and uh, I was in the office late one night, I'll never forget this. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine, a guy called Richard Blue, was over from the London office and, and we were talking about stuff. And I'd read all about, in the sort of tech press, about this thing called Mosaic, right, which became Netscape. But I'd not seen the Mosaic browser, you know, point and click, right, the, the, the revolution that was HTML, HTML and point and click. And I was talking to Richard, it was about nine o'clock at night, he said, oh, I've got Mosaic on my computer, do you want to see it? And I'm like, oh yeah, I really, I was really interested in that. And so he fires up his computer, opens the Mosaic browser. He's a British guy. Through, you know, three seconds later, we're looking at apartments to rent in London, point and click. And I'd been doing all this complex, you know, very user-unfriendly online stuff. And I just went, oh, my goodness, this is going to change the world. And six weeks later, I quit my job and uh, went for it. Like, you know, you just... I just felt like I'd seen the future and um, you know and I, I did a post recently on social media about once a decade I kind of have that experience you know there's fashion trends go through Silicon Valley every couple of years and most of them turn out to be completely bogus and they're slavishly followed you know I'm old enough to remember things that no one's ever heard of now like push technology was the big thing in, I don't know, 97, 98, no one's ever heard of it. It was not a thing, right? There's, a, there's interesting stuff in the blockchain and crypto and stuff but massively overblown but every once in a while something does come along that you go, oh, hang on. So when ChatGPT was released, you know, late last year and I was reading about it in January and I got a bit of buzz and I jumped on the thing for five minutes and I just went, oh, wow, the, this is a big deal. So so I think every once in a while- you So can, you see that as really being as- continued. I think generative AI is a big deal. Yeah, wow. I do. Um, um, and so it was really a matter of like, you're doing what you're doing in Silicon Valley and mm. you've got this company and you really believe in it and everything, mm. but you're just looking for the money to, to really give it a go. So you keep doing meetings and you keep doing presentations yes. or- Well, how, we didn't know did anyone, you? right? So, so, so I started out, my, my client at the time McKinsey in the media practice was of all people Reader's Digest right this stodgy old uh, and I was uh, I'd become very close with uh, the, the, the chairman and chief exec of the Digest trying to help him modernise the business and then I said to him look I'm actually going to leave the firm I want to go and do this internet thing and he asked me about it and we started talking about it and 40 minutes later he offered me a deal with 10 million bucks to fund it right? whoa. so I'm like whoa okay we're off to the races here so um uh, and so, but, you know, the thinking was basically... So you could gather a team that you wanted. Yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't really have the right people then either. But, um, uh, but but some really important people joined early on. Martin Hosking being one of them has gone on to do, you know, amazing things with Redbubble and, and, and a number of other tech companies. Martin was, I think, employee number three with us. And, um, but... Um, you know, and Paul Bassett was my lawyer back in those days when he was at Blocks, and so we, we go back with all the all the old tech folks. But you know, we my view was in a world of infinite information, which was what was coming at us in the internet, then search would be the power position, and that uh, the revenue stream was likely to be direct marketing, um, and that all turned out to be true, and. So we got involved in search very early, but I didn't. I didn't know anything about venture. I didn't have any contacts in Silicon Valley, and and I wasn't funded by the venture guys. I was funded by corporate. And so when Reader's Digest went, got itself in all sorts of trouble a few years later, and they they had to get out of the business, we were left like high and dry, and didn't know anyone or know how to raise money. And I had like uh, seventy five days cash left in the bank and sixty five people on my team, and uh, I had to start trying to raise venture. And I, so what did you do? I, you know, I, I talked to everyone, tried to 
find out how it worked and, you know, dialed for dollars, right? And I, I mean, I was raising, you know, 50,000 at a time or 200,000 at a time. Like I went within two days of not being able to meet payroll nine times in six months. We had a fortnightly payroll. Um, and, uh, you know, we barely survived, but we got through. And interestingly, some of the money we raised was actually back in Australia. And, um, Again, I don't think it's a breach of confidentiality because it's been widely reported. But, but you know, the Liverman family, among others, uh, were, were uh, instrumental in backing us at a time when no one no one would. And uh, as did Macquarie Bank um, and and a number of other folks. Uh, and you know, they made a hundred times their money, so they were well rewarded for their faith. <laughs> I'm happy to report. Um, it's an it's an interesting thing that because um, I've also I've got a friend who's unbelievably successful in America really mm. for a long time in in a business that needed money and he and I remember a conversation where he talked about going through the yellow pages and just dialing for dollars cold calling anybody. Well, that well I'll, I'll tell you my favourite story from that time. Okay, so it's Thursday night. Um, in the office it's like six o'clock at night i got a payroll monday i don't got the money right and i've kind of gone down my list and i'm done and and i remembered we borrowed a little bit of money we got a little bit of venture debt as it's called uh, which brings up silicon valley bank that's a whole other story but um from a little firm uh that did they'd lend you money uh, you know secured against your ip or whatever you got in the office service and stuff and i'd heard from the person i dealt with there that one of their board members quite liked what we were doing i'd never met this guy uh, his name was Larry Hootnick, and I think Larry was actually an ex, like, CFO of Intel, so he was a pretty senior guy, but I didn't know. Anyway, I'd heard that he liked what we were doing, apparently, when it got to credit committee or whatever. Anyway, I'm sitting there Thursday night. Oh, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I've called everyone I know. And I'm like, oh, well, there was that guy. Who that was? His name Larry Hootnick. I'll get his phone. I'll call him, right? So I call this guy up. I've never never met him and I said oh Larry my name's Evan Thornley you might remember you're on the credit committee and uh, this firm and you lent us some money and I, I heard from someone that you you know quite like what we're doing and he said yeah no Evan I thought it was uh, really interesting what you're doing and uh, I was really excited by what you were where you were going and I said well look Larry we're we're in the process of raising some capital and uh, I was wondering if you'd be willing to have a chat about it and and he said look no happy to Evan really interested he said I, I look I don't really just put money into things I, I like to put time in go on the board or not 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 and I said Larry that would be great I mean I would love to work with someone with your experience and uh, and he said, terrific. He said, uh, he was down in the valley. I was up in the city in San Francisco. He said, look, I'll be up in the city in a couple of weeks. We'll have lunch, see if we get along. And if we do, we'll go there. And I said to him, I said, Larry, I'd love that. That would be great. I've got to be honest. I need the money a little quicker than that. And he's like, okay, Evan, what, you know, what's your story? Where are you? I mean, he obviously sent a lot of startups. I said, I'll be honest, Larry, I, I, I got a payroll Monday. I, I can't meet. And, and, and God bless him. Larry Hootnick, a man I had never met, said, okay, Evan, send me the papers in a FedEx bag. I'll send them back signed tomorrow. I'll give you 50 grand. You'll get through payroll and I'll be up in a couple of weeks and we'll talk. And that was how we met payroll. (laughs) Now, again, thankfully, uh, the universe rewarded Mr. Hootnick, who made a hundred bagger on his 50 grand. So, um, but, and at the same time, when you, when you're, what was the term you used before? When unreasonably persistent. Unreasonably right. persistent. That's what you got to be. And some people have got it and others well, haven't. Well, I mean, what else was I going to do? Like, I, I literally didn't had have money for a ticket home. Had, had you started Well, yeah, I, I left McKinsey six weeks after our twins were born. <laughs> so on top of this payroll yeah. thing, you had a family yeah. that you were looking to support as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, the stakes were pretty high. And did... <laughs> Did defeat ever enter your mind, even as you were um, all, faced with all, all of all this? the time? But you just had to keep going. Right? And, yeah, just looking at yeah, I, how do I you fix don't, it you don't rather look at than the world through rose-coloured glasses. No, you you focus on all the things that could kill you and try and stop them doing that. And if you stop anything that can kill you from killing you, then you're still alive, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> so it's the questions you ask in your own mind, how do I fix this? How do I get yeah, over it? Yeah, you it's relentlessly, far more there important relentlessly than focused on the, on the difficult stuff, not on the blue sky. I mean, you, Or the why. People go crazy over the why. The why doesn't matter a lot of times, does it? Well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, I think that's a complex question, but, you know, there are times and places and it's important to be reflective, I think. Um, but 
you know, if you're in a crisis, then you just got to you got to do it. Power to through do. it. Yeah, you just got to survive. <laughs> but also the euphoria of getting that fifty thousand yeah. must have been amazing. Yeah. You know, we had one only one person. I kept the team completely. I was totally honest with my team. I didn't want anyone suddenly waking up and getting a pink slip and not seeing it coming, and maybe having families to support. So I was completely honest with the team. I update them every couple of days on how the capital raising was going, and no one left which was amazing to me. They all hung in there. One guy left, this guy, Diraj Manti, a good guy, but he got a job somewhere else. And so so we, we gave him a farewell. I and mean, these were pretty dark times, right? Like the right. company was a death store and you could hardly blame this guy for leaving. Anyway, so Diraj left. So um, so we, we gave him a going away party, you know, arrogance and adversity, right? So, so I gave him a going away party and I gave him a, a Beatles record. And I said, Diraj, you get the inaugural Pete Best Award. And he said, who's Pete Best? I said, he's the guy who left the Beatles in 1962. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. That's fantastic. And, and sure enough, when we went public at a billion two a couple of years later, I get this call. It's Diraj. He's like, Evan, you, you know, I, I had these stock options and I was wondering, I'm like, sorry, man. <laughs> like, you, you left. The other guys stayed. Yeah. They're all millionaires. Uh, it's, no. all, it's all life. <laughs> Okay, let's just pop back to your political sure. career because that in itself is also fascinating. Yeah. How did you – so it's from university days that you dipped your toe in the water into that. Oh, very deeply, yeah. Look, I mean, I'm in context, okay, so um, – I grew up in a in a single parent family on, on welfare, so mum and four kids, um, and uh, you know a range of difficult things in my childhood. And I was lucky enough to escape enough of that to get a chance to end up getting to university and for things to go well for me. And uh, you know, if it wasn't for the welfare system and the other sort of social infrastructure that was in place. So I, I wouldn't have had those opportunities. So I uh, I felt naturally aligned with that side of politics. Um, and so I joined the Labor Party when I was 19 years old. And, um, and you know, that was just, just at the time of the Hawke-Keating government coming to power. Did you have aspirations oh, of definitely. prime ministership? Oh, well, I don't know about that, but I, I definitely, I, I suppose Keating was my hero um, in terms of reforming the Australian economy. And, um, and, and so, you know, I, I got very involved in student politics, ended up being president of the campus, ended up helping set up the National Union of Students. Um, and, and through all of that, that was where, you know, I, I ended up being interestingly enough there's a whole interesting part of the story for me uh, much closer with my Jewish student colleagues than I was really with my labor colleagues and that's where my close friendships ended up coming from so this is again a long way back um, uh, the previous national student union the Australian Union of students had collapsed because it had had all this idiotic Palestine policy and a whole bunch of people from a broad range across the political spectrum from Michael Danby to Peter Costello and others had had tried to uh, take the union down because it was not representing students. It was carrying on these nonsense policies about the Middle East. And so when we tried to re-establish a new national student union, because like, you know, Dawkins was bringing in fees and stuff and students needed a voice, um, we wrote into the constitution, there will be no international policy full stop. Wow, right? awesome. Right? And so, as you might imagine, the Orchis folks went, yeah, great. So, we became really close allies um, and I was I was close allies with the, the Muges team at, at Melbourne Uni and, again, some of my closest friends to this day came from those days. So, um, and, and so that's how I ended up being invited with Richard Miles and others on, on the Young Political Leaders Tour. And, you know, then, you know, it's still not safe for me to walk the streets of North Fitzroy at night, right? Like the <laughs> ultra left and me have hated each other for 40 years. And, um, you know, and uh, when we got back, they called us the Mossad faction. And we liked it so much, we decided to call ourselves the Mossad faction. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, I have friends that call me the, um, the, the, the love child of, um, Genghis Khan. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. like, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, so so you know, this is part of my forty year journey, you know, to to my conversion. So was a really deep connection with with Israel and with with the Jewish community here in Melbourne and and many dear dear friends. Um, 
Yeah. And you, um, I can safely say you're more conservative now than left wing or? Look, I would say I, I feel very politically homeless. Uh, I mean, I left the Labor Party a decade ago. Um, uh, uh, do, you, do you still have a, a, a fleeting or deep involvement in politics? Well, I mean, I, I know a lot about politics. I care a lot about where the country's going. I have what I'd like to think are very thoughtful and well-informed views, um, but I don't fit anywhere in the current political system. Understand. Right? I've so, voted Liberal all my life. I could not vote Liberal last election. Right. You know, so... And in I fact, mean, gave uh, up membership and everything. Yeah. I... Um, uh, yeah. I, I, there's, I, I, I don't fit anywhere. Uh, the whole current culture war, to me, is kind of misplaced. The things that I think are important are just not central to either of the main political Maybe groupings. you can answer this because nobody yeah. else has been able to. Sure. How on earth did this new idiotic wokeness, how on earth was it able to get embedded in the, the, the fabric of Australia so quickly where you get, where you get asked, uh, or offered a different gender on a passport application and and you get materials and trainings that are CRT. How did that even happen? Well, yeah, I can answer that. And I think I can give you a very interesting answer, actually. Um, and, and, and again, I, I should say, you know, my own experiences and views on these issues are complex. Um, someone very near and dear to me, very, very close to me, um, has had a gender transition and 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 I uh, care deeply about them and have been 100% supportive of them. But that doesn't mean that everything that's happening out there, uh, I uh, think, is, is making a lot of sense. And uh, a whole lot of the sort of broader identity politics stuff let me tell you a story because I think it's really interesting. When I was fighting with the ultra-left 40 years ago on campus, a number of them, you know, said to me at the time, and I think they were quoting Antonio Gramsci, the Italian communist from the 1930s, 20s and 30s. They said, you don't understand, Evan, we're doing the long march through the institutions. And they did Right. So and, and I expected that they would go into the academy, into the universities and take them over, and they did. I expected that they would go into the public service and take it over, and they did. What I did not expect was that they'd go into the corporate sector and take it over. But they did. They were much more ambitious than any of us expected. Wow. Right. So, um, you know, there's been a, a, an agenda. Um that a, a group of, you know, sort of post-Marxist, you know, theorists have been pursuing for a very long time. And, you know, if there's one thing we know from Jewish history, when your enemies tell you they're going to do something, you should believe them. And they do, yeah. Right? The one fantastic thing that came out of the whole COVID crisis mm. was that it actually unveiled a lot of plans that we were not supposed to know about until decades mm. from now. Mm. And so that gives us at least a fighting chance. Because, mm. you know, look, I don't care if somebody's transgender mm. or homosexual. Makes no difference. Sure. Live and let live. You live in mm. Australia, you should be an Australian. Mm. That's all that matters. Mm. And we support each other no matter what you do. Mm. But when the United States of America has the leader of their military who is in place because of transgender, not because of his, um, not because of his expertise, that it's like you're, you're, you're living in, the, in a movie mm. and it's scary. Yeah, I, um, um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought on that. Sorry, we'll, we'll come back to it. Yeah, but, no. Yeah. Um, so I was also gonna ask you, are you still interested in owning a newspaper? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, newspapers, boy, what's the business model for newspapers these days? I mean, I still think the media is hugely important. Yes. Um, and um, uh, you know, the media and the education system are really the ideological formation 
institutions of our society and and a lot of what's going on I don't agree with so um, and social media is a whole new yeah factor. Uh, and it's got its own toxicity in so many ways so yeah I, sorry I remember what I was going to say which maybe is a bit off topic from your question but uh, I guess just one of the examples of where I feel politically homeless uh, is again not uh, not per se to take issue with some of the issues that that are very popular now. I have my own and complex views on them, but I don't understand why, who decides which issues get all the airtime and who decides who gets none. So my personal passion, because uh, this was my childhood and then I ended up uh, in the same situation as a single dad, is sole parent families, right? It's tough. It is tough to bring up kids on your own, you know? There are a million sole parent families in this country. There are two and a half million children living in sole parent families, right? The, the degree of disadvantage that flows from that to everybody concerned is massive. Do we ever hear about that? There are you know, a range of other issues that are incredibly high profile that bring a whole lot of heat, light and sound. And yet, you know, where I come from, if the progressive politics was meant to be about anything, it was meant to be about helping people who are disadvantaged get a fair start in life. And here we are staring us in the face of a, of a you know, massive group of people, particularly children, um, who start life with a, a huge set of disadvantages. And, you know, that that that's yeah. where are my far left friends when when that's something should be done about that? Not on the not on the first page, right? So, I, I just that's that's why I say I'm politically homeless. The things that I think are most important, um, uh, and uh, the issues that I care the most about, are just not you know. And frankly, you know, no one's been good on that stuff, right? I mean, Julia Gillard cut the payments to sole parent families. Uh, there's been no one there for for those people. Um, and, but you know what? The biggest secret about Lily High on Life, and keep it a secret because it's 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 something that people have to realize and become self-empowered and take responsibility for themselves no matter what hand you've been dealt you can be in a horrible situation and have billions of dollars and it doesn't matter your emotional state so lily high on life is all about and there i've got writings on my website and stuff too how to pick yourself up when you're feeling low look yeah absolutely and And when when i say that what i'm not saying is let's throw money at the problem right and look and i'm saying no because I, i i tried that myself okay i conducted this experiment myself i became wealthy because of what happened in my business life and my family is not and so i thought this is great i can solve everyone's problems you know and i'll you know i don't know how many houses i bought and stuff and try i thought this i can lift everyone up yeah if if people are committed to lifting themselves up and they ask for your help you can help them and it's a great thing that you do that um but but the the motivation has to come internally it can't be imposed from the outside and uh and so so much of what happens is throw money at the problem and it doesn't solve the problem in no. in many cases it makes and it worse even for mental health i don't care if every single person on the planet has their own therapist mm. it's not about that it's about it's got to internally come from who you be- who and what you believe you are and that comes from feeling good and feeling good could be just a summer day and enjoying the sun or playing with a puppy that good feeling you need to find where it comes into you from there yeah look i i agree with that and uh what's challenging i think and this is partly why i care so much about the epidemic of family breakdown is that uh in my observation and there's any amount of clinical evidence for this um the degree of self-esteem and self-respect that is typically present uh, on average statistically in children in sole parent families is less than it is in in two parent families uh not in every case of course and and an amazing and this is not a criticism of sole parents at all uh, but it's just so you know and i've battled these things myself and um and so you, you know finding the internal resources and the internal self-esteem and self-respect to be able to do that is is the real challenge and and your situation if you don't mind me saying was not even usual because often 
when there's a divorce, mm. the um, the financial situation stays the same mm. for both parents. It might change mm. a little bit, but it really got devastating for you because when your parents separated, you really went on the welfare system, which yeah. is no fun at all. We, we were catapulted out of the educated upper middle class into the welfare class. Right? And Overnight. what did that tell you about you and how did you grow up? Obviously, it had a different kind of effect than most people. Well, well, yes, although I would say, and I've said this before, um, uh, I think that the thing that was most difficult for me and my sisters was actually not the financial poverty, though that was real. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm 10 centimetres shorter than my dad, right? We were malnourished as kids, literally. Mm. Um, but but was actually the emotional poverty. And, yes. you, you know, my mum and, and, you know, I guess when my sisters and I were growing up, we kind of had a sense that as you grew older and you got to know other kids' parents, mum was a bit different to other people, but we didn't really understand why. And it was only years later when one of my nephews was diagnosed with Asperger's. And I didn't know much about the autistic spectrum and, and my sister explained it to me. And I said to her, gosh, that sounds like mum. And she said, yeah, totally. And so we realised, I think only as adults, that uh, that our mum, through no fault of her own, was was fundamentally limited in her emotional capacity. She had additional challenges. Her ability to form meaningful relationships with her own children or with anyone else. So there were no family friends, there were no other. And so I think for us, the emotional poverty was probably more, even more challenging than, yes, financially, we were, we were pretty badly off, but... Um, and it's yeah. not, it's, so it's really, I don't, personally, it's not about throwing money at the problem, it's about um, educating people or showing people that they can find happiness within themselves and when they feel better, everything around them gets better. So feel better most of the time. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm obviously, uh, you know, you ask me if I'm more conservative in some ways. I mean, by most people's traditional definitions, absolutely, right? I mean, I'm a... I'm a, a, a religious person. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person of faith. Um, and, uh, you know, central to that is, you know, the central, one of the central Jewish contributions to the world is the idea that we're all made in the image of God. Um, and, and so that's, if you can really feel that and believe that, that drives an internal sense of self-respect. Absolutely. And that, that's transformative. So. Um, Evan, just quickly, because yeah. we're running out of time yes. in this show, I've got to do another right. one with you on your faith and religion. Mm. But how did it feel? What were the things going through your mind mm. when the first time you realised mm. that money was not an issue, that you had enough money to buy houses for people, mm. and what you went through as a child, which obviously still waiting you, mm. what goes through your mind when, when that happens? Yeah, gosh. I mean, it was just mind-boggling. I mean, I, I remember exactly when it happened because um, we, we sold a bunch of shares into our mezzanine round and suddenly I had, you know, not huge, but enough money that I knew we were going to be able to buy a home and pay for our kids' school fees. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, that was completely transformative. Um, to, you know, look, what I would say is this, and, and I, I've, <laughs> I've lived through kind of, the entire financial spectrum. Uh, everybody desires financial security and everyone should desire financial security and a lack of financial security just makes life really hard. There's a path from there to what I'll call financial freedom where you really actually have the freedom to do whatever you want. That's nice to have. Beyond financial freedom, there's no, there's no upside. Right, there's no benefit. I certainly wouldn't sacrifice too much to get there, right? Um, so I think it makes very good sense for people to do whatever they can to get themselves to, at least to the minimum position of financial security of knowing that they, they're they going to be okay and that, that a lack of money is not going to make their lives really difficult. Um, if you get the opportunity to get more towards financial freedom, that's lovely, but I wouldn't sacrifice too much for it in terms of family and other things. And certainly there's no particular benefits beyond that point. So... Um, Any epiphanies yeah. or just a sense of great relief off your shoulders? Oh, I, I'd love to great say there relief. was, yeah, just relief. <laughs> Look, you know. Awesome. We yeah. have run out of time and no this worries. has been absolutely wonderful. So thank you very, very much. Really, really enjoyed Thanks, your openness and, yeah. and your contribution to Lily High on Life. Thank you, Lily. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.